This is the Detroit is Different Podcast Network, the culture of an American classic city. listening to the piper carter podcast on the detroit is different podcast network all right we are back in the detroit is different podcast studios i am here for another piper carter episode i haven't been in effect in a while but i'd be too 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 remiss not to be in full effect for this one right here this is one of the people on a very 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 short list that as a person i can follow it's a lot of people i follow because of the work they do but as a person this is a man to follow a lot of humility a lot of uh, a lot of effort in staying committed to working with our people through the challenges the proclivities the trauma the drama and actually even personal growth himself of understanding where people are and where we can go um this guy when I think about everything you can do for the black community from feeding people to teaching people to giving people information and then also giving people what they love most. And that's artistry was the first interview I ever had for the Detroit is different podcast machine that has become a network because I was like, who am I going to interview first? And I was like, I, I can't think of anybody else. <laughs> To start it off more so than this guy and even in that podcast interview i found out more about him than i ever knew in my life i was like damn i didn't even realize this type of stuff was happening in detroit but uh kind of from my hood too so that's always good and uh deep dude one of the coolest people you'll ever meet in your life malik yakini is here in effect with piper carter and piper's full of energy too as we were already well, piper really was talking uh already about doing this and doing that and doing that and we're already putting it in the sphere because i'm putting the the heat on piper as piper's always talking about other people not exercising the best of their abilities and talents piper has committed to doing a photo shoot for malik yakini and molly wap yes so that means she's gonna do it yes. you are listening and you got to make sure that not just molly wap and Malik Yakini, but so many of the other beautiful artists throughout Detroit. With your skill sets and your eye and the experience you have, Piper, you can take a camera phone. Yeah. And make great pictures. I and could I give have. you a Polaroid. <laughs> yeah. 
and you will definitely it will not look like your mama no. at the barbecue <laughs> not at all <laughs> not at all yeah so, listen baba malik yakini is in the building yes yes what up though oh my god he's like him Habargani. what it is what it do john ball we up in here oh my goodness okay let's bring britney to the room you're our token millennial peace She's come from the future to give us the present. I'm how, back. How, how old are you? You a millennial? 28. 28. Man, 89. I used to be 28. 28 is a deep year. Yes. Tell me. Some people call it the solar return. It is. Mm. And you you go, you kind of grow into the fullness of yourself during that year. But I am. also it's a <laughs> lot of usually trauma or kind of drastic changes that take place. I don't know you. I don't know if that's happening, but. Thanks for the introduction for him, Kari. You just laid it all out. So, yeah. Well, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's it. He can't. He's the he's the uh, the oracle. No, nah, mm-hmm. but Brittany kind of looks up to like um, some of the work I do. As people always say, like, how do you do this and how do you do that? And you always seem like this and you always seem like that. And I feel like I'm I'm actually um, blessed because I got big homies like Bobby mm-hmm. Malik. Right. Um, it's been a it's been a post going on through like something else about uh, <laughs> Brazelton flowers. And uh, Edgar Brazelton Jr., who passed away this past year, um, that was another one of my big homies. It's been a lot of big homies that have passed that carried themselves with a level of integrity, uh, unmoved, but still understanding of the challenges of our community, right. but never bought, uh, never aligned themselves with what I would consider, uh, let's say, foolishness. Fugazi. Foolishness. <laughs> but it's another term. It's another. So before we get too deep off of this, can yeah. we can we cuss yeah. on this podcast? Yeah, yes, you can. Okay, so we can say like dumb fuckery and shit like yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I just, I just want to be. Clear. That is mm-hmm. that is definitely what they align themselves with. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Malik is one of those guys. So if if anything you see that's dope in me, mm-hmm. kind of comes from OGs like this in the game. Okay, I appreciate that. That was that's real. Yeah, man. So Bob Malik, we we just heard your music, um, and you're a musician. Among among many, you know, did aspects you, you of like alchemy. It? Piper, did you like it? I actually do love your music. I love your music a lot. I love your performances. Um, I can say that I actually, in preparation, so I've been to a lot of your performances, and in preparation for this interview, I went back and looked at some performances. A couple of them I had actually been to, and some of them I hadn't been to. Um, and I would say that I've seen your evolution um, and it's interesting, too, because usually when you talk about evolution of a person, mm-hmm. it's like uh, from like a ch- like a child person into like an adult person. And you're one of those people who is an adult that continually evolved. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's a type of, you know, uh, you know, role model, I should say. I know you probably don't like that title, but that's a type of role model. You know what I mean? That that, that I like to have like a person who is like self-reflecting, ever-evolving, because that shows life. Mm. You know what I'm saying? That shows a person who knows what life is about. Um, And so, okay, so I always come with some like current events. So I wanted to bring these current events into the room because I wanted to get your voice on these, Baba. Can I say this before you go to that? Yes, sir. Because Brother Kyrie laid out all the accolades. And first, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I'm well hum- deserved. I'm humbled that you that you think I played a positive role in our community. Oh, but big time. but just like you saying, you had big homies. To the extent that I'm doing anything of value, it's because I had good teachers also. Mm. And so I just want to like acknowledge that continuity, mm. mm-hmm. right? 
and I want to name two in particular. One is Melvin Peters, mm -hmm. who many people have heard of because he taught at Michigan State for many years, and he's done many things at the African American Museum, mm -hmm. brought the last poets in several times. Mm -hmm. So he was my eighth grade English teacher, and his mm -hmm. homeboy, they were, both came from West Virginia in about 1967 mm -hmm. to Detroit, his homeboy Ronald McComb. So they were both my teachers at Post Junior High School exposed me to Malcolm X, to Jimi mm. Hendrix. So I just want to lift those up and say it's a, it's a continuity. So mm. thank you. Give Dr. Thanks. Peters is, he is, he's definitely, I need to get him on Detroit. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So the reason I wanted to bring these stories in the room is number one, because they're current, but, um, and you know, they're things that, um, impact our community, but number two, because it's issues that I have seen you stand firm on and um and and lead discussions on and um i wanted to um get your voice on it so um really briefly um ving rames um recently uh talked about on the breakfast club well the breakfast club played an interview about ving rames and basically he uh was at home and he heard a noise outside and he was in his, you know, basketball sh shorts, just like hanging out. And he uh, heard a knock at the door. He answers the door and it's the police. And the police have a, um, a nine millimeter. He says he saw the red dot like pointed at his face. And um, he said the police told him to hold his hands up. And um, he said he held his hands up and then they told him to open the screen door. And he was like, well, when, which one do you want me to do? You want me to hold my hands up or open the screen door? So they were like, well, open the screen door with your one hand. So he opened the screen door with his one hand. Eventually, they straightened everything out, meaning um, the police apologized, whatever that means. And um, they realized that uh, a neighbor had called. And so um, somehow Ving Rames got the address from like you know the report so um it was actually the chief of police that, that that came on the call so him and the chief went over to the neighbor's house who actually lives directly across the street and the neighbor denied uh making the call i mean that thank god that he wasn't hurt but let me say let me put it this way because he was hurt that's trauma somebody putting a gun and you open your door and you're facing a gun that's harm it's psychological and emotional harm. You're harmed. You're scarred. He probably is suffering some sort of, you know, post-traumatic stress. I mean, you're at home where you're supposed to be in your sanctuary relaxing. It says a bunch of things. You know, how long has he been in the neighborhood? I don't know. Um, the fact that people are calling police on him. But I wanted to have, I mean, I know it's not a long enough conversation. I mean, probably need a whole podcast about this. But I wanted to bring this in because I see you often speak about police terrorism and i just wanted to get your voice on this i mean i know you're not necessarily familiar with this particular story but i wanted to open it up to a police terrorism conversation i'm going to respond by telling another short story and that is that last thursday night i was coming from the studio uh, recording the vocals on the track that we just heard and myself and um Celine, one of the vocalists in the group were leaving the studio together so this is about maybe 12 30 at night I just got the CD cut that we just heard and um, get in the car. We get in the car and we see the police like at the end of the corner. So maybe 100 yards from where we're parked. We see them just sitting in the street in the car. So, you know, I took note of it and, um, you know, made sure our seatbelts were on, the lights were on. I'm doing everything legal. 
So okay. I pull out of the parking lot of the studio, and I had to make a, a, a right, then I had to make a left, then I had to make another left, and then I got to the main street. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I got on the main street, I looked behind me, and there's flashes. You know, the police are pulling me over. So they come up to the window and say, well, we just had a complaint that there was some men talking loud and had a gun. And so, and then we see you two come out the building, so that's why we're pulling you over. So, of course, they asked us a, bun- a bunch of questions, you know, where you coming from? We said we were in the recording studio. How long were you there? You know, but again, it's just, it's just, um, it's targeting black men in particular, black mm-hmm. people in general. But, you know, black men are targeted mm. by the police. Now, frankly, since I've gotten gray in my beard, I'm not as much a target as mm. I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But... When I was in my 30s, I was a police magnet. It's like Mm. I pull out and, you know, almost every time, even on the highway, you know, myself and Baba Kalindi, we were were going to the African Street Festival in New York once. Police followed us for about five miles and finally pulled us over. He followed us so long because he was waiting on backup. Mm. They pulled us over on the side of the, uh, the New Jersey Turnpike. And he tells me to get out the car. Then he says... You know, asked us where we're going. We explained we're going to the African Street Festival in New York. He said, I want to see your bags. So he had me open my luggage, mm-hmm. right, and on the side of the highway and look through my stuff. Anyway, I'm just saying this is, you know, this is what happens every day. And uh, it's all the more reason that black people need to organize so that we can build power both to protect ourselves and organize to advance our vision for what the future should be. Right. Yes. And I think about it, too, because um, <sighs> I love that you said we have to organize. Right. Because when we think about the idea of um, I'm going to just say this word, this words, black excellence. This is something that um, has been promoted. Right. I'm going to say specifically to African-Americans. Right. Because in the African-American psyche, it's been planted um this idea of upward mobility as success and the upward mobility means that you number one get your education from some place that is nowhere near where you're from and you pay this money for this so-called value of knowledge that has nothing to do with anybody that looks like you or ever looked like you and you get this certification or you get this piece of paper that tells folks that you're valuable and that tells people like that you deserve this to be paid this amount of money because your skills are worth more than these other people that don't have this. If I can add something to what you're saying. So, right. y- yes, yes, yes. I agree. Everything you said. Also, what that piece of paper suggests, it doesn't guarantee, but it suggests that you've been socialized enough mm. that you're going to behave in a mm-hmm. way that you can fit into the workplace and you mm. won't cause problems. Mm. You know, and generally mm-hmm. the farther you go through the schooling system, and I try to make a distinction between schooling and education, right. but the farther, farther you go through the schooling, usually the more socialized you've become mm. and the less of a threat you are. With that, you, become, you, you develop relationships. I'm not, I'm not necessarily judging this part, but I am and not at the same time. You develop relationships with people that look nothing like anybody that looks like you, right? And even if you, like, I went to a historically black college. So even if you go to an institution as such, 
Um, you know, I went to Howard University. A lot of the people there are from uh, black people that have what you would call means, right? Um, so with that, you are socialized with people that don't have anything to do with your community. Let me put it that way. Mm-hmm. And the rhetoric whether it's through being taught directly or through things that you see or through all the media that you consumed is that success looks like you leaving your family, your community and your surroundings and you go to someplace else that's way far away from here. And that's where success is because success is nowhere around anywhere where your grandma is or your uncle or anybody who loves you for real or that you love and you become this isolationist you become isolated and so uh it becomes ingrained in you that as an individual you've achieved this level of success without anybody's support even if you had a scholarship even if you had a mentor even if you had a so-called fraternity or sorority the, the 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 rhetoric is your self-made well uh, the the whole idea of uh the bootstrap mentality right you know i've taken so many classes in business theory and i love to debate a lot of these economists uh, mm-hmm. a, a lot of this is like many things in this structure it's it's and this is a generalization these things are designed <coughs> to to make the middle-aged white male feel uh, to to coddle their ego mm. because to to step outside and to actually acknowledge the conditioning that allowed you the privileges to get what you got right you have to go into exploring the atrocities mm. and the the trauma and, and so many of these uh problems uh that 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 are the ugly truths of of America, of Europeans, right. of colonization, of uh, white people in general. I mean, the the idea of upward mobility, the idea right. of 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 you can make your own success. All opportunities right. are presented, and everybody has a fair shot. This is the land of opportunity. Right. It's milk and honey. That's the you promo. Know, like the, these concepts are still even through even my community. Yeah, and, and what I'm doing in this house right here in my yeah. grandma's house. Mm-hmm. The, the number one thing that people that most people say on all levels generally, you know, and this is black, white, uh, the people even in the hood. It's like as soon as you get successful, you're going to really be able to find a place. Really? And this, this supersedes the idea that, yeah, I, I've had this I is had the places place. Yeah. In the suburbs. I've had places downtown. Mm-hmm. I've chosen to do right. business here. Right. And the one person that told me this and this is another one of the people that look up to you. And you're a big homie to him is Yusef Shakur. When I first put my first pieces of equipment in here, Yusef walked up to me and he said, man, this is the most revolutionary shit you ever did. And right. I started laughing. And, and the more that I'm here and even able to do this, it is that. Yeah. So as much as the message is us podcasting, mm-hmm. it's also re- remember the day uh, that the kids were, uh, I don't know if that we were walking out from your podcast, but like the kids from down the street were racing. Mm-hmm. They were racing up and down the block, yeah. and then I was telling them about what podcasting is and yeah. everything. It it presents new realities mm-hmm. in the space and place because that same indoctrination is not just in the quote unquote upwardly mobile Negro, yeah, <laughs> quote unquote. It's in it's all in the in, people in like I mean we've drank mm-hmm. this. I mean the 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 flip side of uh, of it is like to break that to realize what 
what Bob Malik said. We have to set our own standards of success. We have to set our own value systems. We have to set our own standard for how we conduct ourselves with one another and what we choose to do and embrace the beauty of what we have as opposed to looking at it as if we are without. And I would say just one last thing. I mean, to me, I see um, the... I mean, Ving Rhames was on uh, Mission Impossible. I mean, he was on. I mean, you can name like all the movies that the, the been, biggest he's, movies he's been that he's ever within the white institution. Pretty much, period. and so yeah, yeah the, the chief of police to, knew to who Mir, he was. Miramax Films. <laughs> uh, he's worked with the Weinstein family for generations. Since, right. I mean, you know, and so fiction and with that, even all that wealth, right? Number one didn't protect him Man, from white protect. supremacy, yeah, yeah. and number two. It also, I mean, and this is not to pick on a Ving Rhames. It's just an example. Shows what you're, what you do, Papa Malik, which is build institutions that that uh that support community. But having all that wealth and then having it to yourself, to me, that's an exact. Now, I'm not condoning what happened to him, nor am I celebrating it. I'm just saying that for me, it's a message to say we have, and like you said, we have to organize. Because Ving Rhames doesn't have a community. Ving Rhames mm. does not have any community that is going to hold those police accountable. Who's going to stand up? And, and what I mean by that is those police are going to face no sort of repercussions for violating him by throwing a gun in his face. You don't meet a person. What? I'm just happy that it didn't go the other way. But I'm just saying he doesn't even have a community. There's no one's afraid of Ving Rhames. He's got all that money and no power. And that's just one person, right? That's just a Ving Rhames. Think about all the people in our that that are black, if you will, that, that exemplify black excellence. And that's all the way from the attorney that lives in Southfield. You know what I'm saying? All the way to whomever. Who can, you know, get justice for these things that are happening to our people? Like, no one can hold the police accountable. Like, no one. If, if Ving Rhames had been, you know, Sylvester Stallone, that, that chief of police would have been fired. You know what I'm saying? And it wouldn't even happen to Sylvester Stallone. You understand what I'm saying? Nobody's going to meet Sylvester Stallone at the door. They're going to text him and be like, is it okay if the chief of police but, come but by? We still need to <laughs> we still need to be very intentional about understanding that these systems, I mean, first off, the, like... The intentionality of police started as slave catching in right. the first place. So right. so to say a police is a police officer is harassing, murdering, assaulting a black man, I would it. say that the the I would say he's doing his he's doing job. His job. <laughs> you know? I so get you. to 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 say officer, that officer, <laughs> officer, overseer, yes. right. yeah. that's what, overseer. That's, that's what Chris said, right? Yeah. So Karis yeah. one. So mm-hmm. like the 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 like and even even this whole concept of a justice system. The, this is built in the European order of based on precedent. Right. I mean, how do you build precedent that when you have stolen labor, stolen land, uh, stolen ideas, right. you know what I'm saying? So like you establish a precedent based on and that's why you can't go further. You have to say this is on independence because you can't if you really dive deeper into the theories where they were stripped from, you know, from broken African principles like my. But. Picking and choosing what you want to apply when you want to apply it to your own advantage that you're I mean, it, we have to be intentional. And, and there are 
some forms of uh of ways to 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 work within the system to find i don't necessarily know if i'm going to use the term justice but to to stage a fight mm-hmm. um uh show people that um we will not be trampled upon uh when i think of here's another big homie of mine that mutual of uh and, and he was a peer of baba malik but chokwe lumumba yeah. time and time I and say. time again I no say. he was my elder he, yeah, he did, but, i wasn't his well peer. okay well he's I my big homie for, okay so that's another big homie of yeah. his as well but uh uh jeff edison yeah, um, shouts out to Baba Jeff. Um, there, there are some people, but it's almost like where is where is the mindset of even the person when the atrocity happens? Is yeah. the mindset uh, to say, I got to get this Jewish attorney to fight within the system because often, like I mean, we're, we're you're going against so many of these uh, values, value subsets, and theories. Like you, you have to already. Um, understand where that community lies and, and be intentional about what that is and when you step into that community there are so many uh resources i feel that are abundant but you already have to have a presence of mind yeah in the black community and you ha- and we have to you know it's, it's like multiple multiple things right? i, I want to add a layer to, to what you said earlier when you talk about the alienation that occurs as we go mm-hmm. through these systems right and just say um that this is certainly a phenomenon throughout the african world and it's a global phenomenon mm. it's one of the things that uh colonialism and neocolonialism does is it has the people who are subjugated thinking that success is to emulate the colonizer Mm-hmm. And so the same thing you're describing is what we see in Africa. You know, we see those who are able to go through kind of the Western schools who become alienated from their people and often even move to the Western world and end up getting lost in the West and living there. Uh, but we see the same thing in other, other ethnic groups throughout the world. And so w- one of the uh, essential things, I think, as we, um, as we move towards the kind of society that we like to see is that realizing that this is a global struggle and that the same tactics are used throughout the world. So, and you know, they, they test it out and they perfect it and then they use it in other places. So the way we're reacting is basically the same way that people throughout the world are reacting. They want access to the benefits that come with being the empowered class. Mm. And so they try to imitate the empowered class, not so much because they wanna be them but because they want the the uh, the kind of perks that come along, you know. Right. So they want to benefit from white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So okay. So I'm gonna put a period there, and I'm gonna have to bring you back, Baba Malik, because there's so many topics that I want to go deep with you on. But um, I want to get to your music. But before okay. your music, I, I I feel like people need to hear because your perspective on. Um, dare I say pan-Africanism I'm not sure if that's a modern term that we use I grew up as a pan-Africanist okay Uh, mm -hmm. yeah that's what that's what I grew up as in the 70s Mm -hmm. so you know in the in the in the 2018 I guess I'm an Afro I guess we're called Afrofuturists I don't know you call woke that's, that, that's a bourgeois <laughs> term right woke 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 is such a bourgeois negro term because it 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 suggests Right, it's just a level. I'm woke. Right, I'm I'm, here. I'm, I'm over here, and your ignorant ass is over there. Or even I don't like that. Like I don't well, like people. Woke. People take consciousness as you get to this. You read five books. All right, I read seven. I'm here. I'm I'm woke. 
And then it's like, like you guys were talking, it's, it's evolution. It's never stops. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so another story. And the only reason I want to bring up this story is because you had a, um, a school. You started a school. And um, I wanted to kind of give, um, because you have a lot of um, information to give us about um, self-determination on many levels. But um, this education thing. So um, I, I, pulled out, I pulled up the article just so I don't accidentally uh, get my facts mixed up. But long story short, um, LeBron James has been um, in the news and everyone's very excited because he so-called started a school. But when I read the article, I shouldn't use the word but. And when I read the article, what I realized is that um, it's actually a business deal. So he has a deal with the um, Ohio uh, Public School. The Akron, he's from Akron. So he's actually got a deal with the Akron uh, Public School System which is very different than <laughs> than opening up a school. Let's be clear about that, right? You're still within a public you're still within a public school system, so you still have to abide by those laws. So um so this says the school's inaugural class is going to, going to include um 240 third and fourth grade students. Uh, and they were selected based on their it says socioeconomic status and educational performance. So what now what I would say that that possibly means to me um, is and it doesn't say here this is like me kind of doing media literacy um, we all know that uh, third and fourth grade test scores are used for youth to be on the prison track so I'm going to make an assumption I have to do more reading this story just came out today is Tuesday so you know I'll do some more digging maybe Thursday I'll know more when this comes out but um, it says that uh, about a hundred, it says, uh, the district identified students who were a year or more behind in their reading level, and then they selected 120 kids for each grade. And so I really hope that they get the class size down um, because part of the public school issue <laughs> is that the class size is too big. So I hope they get that down to like 25 even, right? Um, and then the second thing is it says the school plans to expand to first through the eighth grade by 2022 um, and currently employs more than 40 faculty and staff members in order to offer students both longer school days and um, and a longer school year. And it's, uh, ESPN reports that the students who graduate from the program were, uh, will earn free tuition at the University of Akron starting in 2021. So um, then they go on to talk about, you know, uh, some other things, but those were like the key points that I wanted that, that, that really stood out to me because um, what I've been seeing on social media, everyone's like, LeBron opened a school, LeBron opened a school. Mm -hmm. And um, to me, that's very different than opening a school. You actually opened a school, you know. Uh, Marcus Klein in Chicago actually opened a, an African-centered, you know, school that that teaches to the, 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 the black child, the black mind, the, the, the African genius mm -hmm. child, uh, culturally um, includes the family, includes the culture vegan meals are served um you know they, they pay a tuition i know initially your school paid a tuition i came from private african centered school in the taliba where you know initially we paid a tuition before they became a charter and that led to the downfall of the school you had in saroma which i mean um shouts out to all the people who um have graduated from in saroma and now are doing very successful things you know all over the all over the globe um, and so I wanted to kind of 
talk about that because one thing that came to mind is this idea, like we're talking about this upward mobility idea. Um, oh, the other thing is he was saying how he regretted, well, not regretted, but he was feeling remiss because he's now getting traded to, or no, he's not. He's set to the deal to L.A. So he's going to move to L.A. And he was saying, I, I feel bad because I won't be on the ground to be with these kids like every day. And um, and you were on the ground with the youth every day, in addition to all this other institution building, you know, that you did. And I just wanted to kind of highlight in this land of um, Betsy DuVosville <laughs> ruining education um, in this land of the, 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 the privatization of education, which which is actually kind of a falsehood right because well it's not a falsehood it's a it's a conundrum because it's like the it's the privatization of public education which public education is supposed to come from our tax monies meaning that it's supposed to be equitable uh, we're just talking theory now it's supposed to be equitable education for all and so the purpose of having a private african-centered school and having african-centered schooling was to have uh, an educational facility that was more relevant to building a whole and healthy human of, of African descent, right? A black child. So, um, I, you know, this may all be like new information to you. I'm not sure, but I wanted to see if you had anything to weigh in on either owning and having the school and building that institution or anything I said about the LeBron story. So, I mean, that's the first I heard about LeBron. And, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I, I no longer see things in polarities like I used to. So I used to see things as all good, all bad, all this, all that. I don't see things like that anymore. So, you know, on a certain level, you know, that's good. LeBron's doing that. I mean, he could do some other stuff with his money that would be much more destructive. And, you know, maybe he'll, or the people he's working with, because he probably has no knowledge of how to operate a school, he's probably lending his name and money to it, I would mm -hmm. guess. Yeah. It's his, like, foundation. <clears throat> Yeah. So, um, you know, they may be successful in teaching students how to read well and meet standardized tests and, you know, graduate and go to college. They may be successful with all of that. But uh, for me, uh, being, um, you know, having run an African-centered school for a number of years, there's two types of education that we talked about at our school. And really this concept came from uh, a group at, out of New Orleans called Ahidiana, a brother named Kalamu Yasalam. He's a poet. So yeah, Kalamu Yasalam is a poet. He's part of the Black Arts Movement, but he was associated with an institution in New Orleans called Ahidiana. And they pr published some operating principles that they really resonated with me. So they talked about two types of education, one being strategic education, which is the gaining of skills and knowledge, you know, learning how to do things. But then there's also what he called vital education, which is your values and your worldview and your ethics, the things that guide what you do with the strategic education. Mm -hmm. And so usually that's where we end up, um, you know, falling short, that there's people who are starting schools and they may be successful in conveying certain skills, but usually it's from a totally Eurocentric viewpoint. And so it contributes to what you were describing earlier. It might make successful Negroes, but it certainly doesn't make conscious black people who are committed to uplifting our entire community. What usually happens is they become uh, committed to this personal trajectory of so-called success 
And then, you know, then we pointed him and said, oh, that's, you know, look at him. He's a successful Negro. Aspirational. uh, What do you call it? It's like aspirational goals that are not tied to. Uh, ex- extending to, to to expand your 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 community. Yeah, so that's so that's that's the problem with that for me. You know, I don't see where you know, and I don't, I don't know. I haven't spoken to LeBron. I haven't seen their documents. I don't know what their mission is. Right. But if they are, I doubt seriously if they have a serious uh, focus on African history, African American history, culture. I doubt it. And so for mm-hmm. me, any kind of approach to schooling for Black children that is not uh, grounded in that mm-hmm. is going to uh, is not going to have a good outcome for us. Yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna continue to watch it. Maybe um, we might have to help support the schools in some mm-hmm. way. Like, be like, here's some materials. <laughs> I think. Um, <laughs> let me, let me say this. Uh, definitely on the court. You know, I love sports, especially mm-hmm. basketball. So, like Curtis Blow, I, I've completely given up on the NFL, but basketball, yeah. love it. Um, on the court, LeBron is. Eh, off the court, the way he conducts business and what I like about the way he's conducted business most is kind of some of what I'm learning to build from uh, what Baba Malik has always shown me uh, when I think of the Insorma uh, and the team he's built and around him, uh, what he's done with the team where he intentionally every business deal he did, he said, you're going to have to hire one of my friends to be an executive on this account slowly but surely like that intentionality at mm. night at 18 years old like that's like kind of unheard of the the way that <laughs> bob malik started the school uh with a team of like some of the strongest black women one of them you were talking to ng akai earlier today yes um and that support like the intentionality of she's coming on the show too yeah having that team around you that you share with and not living in the life in the light how it's so easy to just be individualistic and feel as though you're everything uh that's not been his plan or course of action with all of his actions it's always been to um walk and provide access opportunity to eventually transition uh i guess the the pejorative or like predominantly white institution and white people running it to say like yo my homeboy i grew up and play basketball with is eventually going to be the executive and executor of this account nike so if you want me to sign Mm -hmm. you got to sign him too and that's very rare it that's very rare on so many levels right now i feel you i mean so yeah so we'll see uh how this is going to play out but um, i wanted to get the school yeah but i wanted to get that in there you know your history of you know having a school and running the school um and so then uh, we'll talk briefly because I want to talk to you about the music. So I want to talk to you briefly um, just so people know. Um, you um, are, what should I call it, a guardian of uh, our healthy food <laughs> here in Detroit. I'm going to say one of our, you're more than a soldier. You're like a general of our, uh, you know, providing healthy food, providing uh, opportunity for folks to learn about eating healthy about the importance of food food systems um entrepreneurship within um the the food system uh, economy um and so i wanted you to speak uh to that and and that larger idea you know because you have the farm and you have the organization 
and you have uh, a, a community that you, um, I want to say, support and, and, and hold. And, uh, you know, I want to, you know, honor all of that. And I wanted to bring it into this larger conversation around, you know, having healthy food in a place where that's becoming increasingly more important. So I want to take it back, back, back. So remember when I was talking about going to Post Junior High School? Mm-hmm. So that was 1969, and I mentioned Ronald McCombs and, mm-hmm. and Melvin Peters. So one of the things they did that really in many ways opened my eyes was they played a record to our class called Message to the Grassroots by Malcolm X. Oh, yes. And in that, he talked about what he called the house I think he might have said house nigger, as a matter of fact. I don't know. <laughs> in, the, in the field nigger, right? right? And I don't really use that term, but I'm, you know, trying to yeah. qu- quote Here's what he said. It's okay. Um, but he talked about, he said the, uh, the enslaved Africans who lived in the house, he said they ate high up on the hog. And they ate, well, you know, what the master left over, what left over. But the masses of people were the field Negroes, right? And mm-hmm. they ate... Um, they ate the the least desirable parts of the pig, if there's any desirable part of the pig, including the snout, the tail, mm. the feet, God. and the guts. Mm. And so I, I heard Malcolm X say, you know, that's what you were, gut eaters. And he said, some of y'all are still gut eaters. Mm. Now, this really was the first time I began to think about food. So as I think about the work I'm doing now, it goes all the way back to hearing Malcolm in 1969. Right. Um, because the reason it had such impact on me, because my favorite food in 1969 was chitlins. Really? Yeah, really. My I, mother, I would never know that. Yeah, well, now you know. So mm. I'm a former <laughs> chitlin, a former chitlin-eating, loving chitlin, vegan. Chitlin right? Wow. <laughs> and so that's why I don't pass judgment on people's diet, because... Okay. I've been to the worst of the worst, mm. and you know I've evolved. So, yeah. um, so that started me on a kind of personal journey, thinking about the relationship between food and culture, and how and how history informs what we eat. And so I gradually, from 1969, began changing my diet, okay. and first eliminating pork, mm-hmm. and then by 1975. Uh, I had become vegetarian um, because of the influence of some activists like Haki Matabuti and others. Um, you know, I decided to to stop eating meat, and then by about '81, I became what I later learned is called vegan. Okay. So I didn't even know that's what it was called then. Right. But so I've been on this personal health journey for a long time, but I still didn't know there was a food movement. Right. And so uh, you know, I was an activist in the Black Liberation Movement. But then as a result of the work we were doing at the school, at Insortum Institute, Mm -hmm. where we wanted to infuse healthy eating and and developing a consciousness about food into the culture of the school, in about 1999, we started doing serious gardening with the students at the school. Wow. So we had a large school garden. Every class in the school had a responsibility. 1999. 1999. Pre-hipster. Pre-hipster. Okay. We've been doing this. Right. (laughs) Pre-hipster. Y'all too cool. Where y'all been? Where y'all been? Y'all just just got here, right? What did Chuck D say? Get a late pass. Yeah, get a late pass. (laughs) Take a seat. Take a seat and learn, right? Step. Um, (laughs) So we developed a food security curriculum that prescribed at each grade level the types of things that students should be learning, not only related to gardening, but related to 
the whole uh, system that produces our food. Right. And so we had a requirement that every teacher in the school had to have at least one lesson per week that was food related. Wonderful. So it could be about nutrition. It could be about gardening. It could be about the cultural aspects of food. It could be about the economic aspects of food. And so we were doing this work at Ensorum Institute, and the work continued to kind of morph and evolve, and we frankly had to create a larger container to hold the work. Right. And so in 2006, we created the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. And mm-hmm. without going into all the details, I'll just say some of the things that we've done. In uh, 2007, we wrote the city of Detroit's food security policy, and I want to lift up the name of Sister Charity Hicks. Ashe. She, she and I worked together uh, along with some other people in helping to create that policy, but also presenting it to the city council, getting mm-hmm. it passed unanimously by the city council. As a result of that policy, we were able to create the Detroit Food Policy Council, right. which I chaired for the first two years, and we intentionally built in term limits because we wanted to have fresh new leadership right. always coming in. Right. And so that organization now stands on its own two feet, has yeah. its own board, its own funding, and all of that. Shout out to Kabibi. Shout out to Kabibi. You know, I went to high school with her mother and father. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so we created D-Town Farm, which is now the largest farm in the city of Detroit in Rouge Park. We have a seven-acre farm. In the hood. In the hood, where we're growing organically. Uh, last year, we grew 37 different fruits, vegetables, wow. and herbs. Uh, we have a youth program called the Food Warriors Youth Development Program. Shouts out to the uh, Mama, Mama Hanifa. Hanifa. Mama Hanifa. And Mama Hanifa came from Ensorteman Institute, too. Right. So it's the same energy, mm-hmm. you know, just like they say in the church. They say the church is not the building. Right. And so the same thing, institutions within a society that we don't have power in are temporary. They might mm-hmm. last for decades, like Ensorteman lasted 24 years. But still they're temporary. But the energy that's the essence of it just yeah. morphs, morphs and shifts. And so the energy is continuing. And so Mama Hanifa, you know, she came as well as Mama Abba, Baba Al, who's the board president. All of them came from mm-hmm. sort of an institute. So mm-hmm. we're continuing that. Mm. Yeah. But um, so we have the youth program and it functions at two sites, Timbuktu Academy. And it functions at the Shrine of the Black Madonna on Saturday. The program, the Food Warriors program on Saturday is partnered with uh, Detroit Independent Freedom School. Shouts out. So, you know, we're making, trying to make these linkages and connections. Yeah. It's all the same struggle. So, mm. so that's what, you know, that's what we're doing. Baba, um, can I tell you all the links that we have? Yeah. So I'm a member, I'm a official staff member, full-time staff member of Detroit Independent Freedom School. So staff meaning that I volunteer. <laughs> um, that's, and then, that's, how, that's how you have a freedom school. That's why I have freedom school. And then I worked at in, in Sodoma yes. 20, uh, two years, the last two years. And I taught video inside of uh, Mama Ife's science class. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And their science project, well, they had various science projects, but um, they were based around um, them understanding plants and plant energies. So they had these different science projects connected wow. to plant energies. Mm. We're talking, um, that was the uh, eighth grade, 7th and 8th grade. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so the city of Detroit, do you know that they actually have now an Office of Sustainability? I do know that. I do. I know uh, the guy who runs it, Joel Harris, mm-hmm. and he's been kind of active in the food movement. You know, he's been an ally. I think he's been a, a positive contributor. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's good that the city has that. 
Um, and so, yeah, Mama Charity Hicks, you know, I'm part of um, EMIAC, East Michigan Environmental Action Council. Bryce talked about that last week. Black uh, led, you know, environmental justice organization here. And she was the policy director. Um, and, you know, just just for people to understand, you know, she was murdered on her way to uh, have a meeting with the United Nations to uh, have Flint and Detroit's water crisis declared mm. a human rights violation. But she was a staunch, you know, fighter for Detroit for food, you know, and food justice mm-hmm. and these food systems as well as water, you know, land. And I want to uplift that. Um, you're in this community as, I know you don't like the term leader, so I'll just say um, a, a supporter and a base builder and a person who holds who uh, holds accountability, you know, holds accountability for um, for keeping for keeping this or, or a keeper, you know, for you know, for this community and for this for these various movements. And um, and then Kabibi, me and Kabibi are in Detroit Equity Action Lab together uh, for racial justice. We had Raul on here who talked about Puerto Rico mm-hmm. in our second podcast. We had Mama Mon- uh, Monica Lewis Patrick from We the People of Detroit, you know, Water Warrior. She was on uh, maybe our third podcast, right, talking about the water. Um, and, yeah, so we have our meetings here every time we have a podcast <laughs> where they bring in healthy food. But, yeah, just wanted to um, uplift, like you were saying, about those points and connections. And so I know you in the community watching you and doing this work, but also I am a lifetime member of the Food Co-op I'm very proud to say I paid my money, and I am very frugal. I paid my money. <laughs> this is important to me because I am anti-capitalist, and I do not part with my dollars. Part but when I do, dollars. I'm serious. Y'all laughing. <laughs> when I part with a dollar, there is lots of thought that has gone into that. But I will say with the um, with with the so you have the farm, you have the organization, and now there's the food co-op, and yeah. and I'm very honored and proud of this work that you're doing give thanks and 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 that the community's doing and i'm glad to be a member of this food co-op and i'm very excited to see like that's moving forward you know like like in a great way so maybe i should say a little bit about that and i'm very glad to be in community with all of y'all it's Mm -hmm. a beautiful thing it's all and it's always a we thing it's never an i thing gotcha you know i mean it's impossible for an individual to build a school or individual to build a farm or co-op. These are all collective things. And so I give thanks that I can play a role in catalyzing some of this stuff happening and galvanizing our collective energy, but it's always about the we. So we are spearheading the development of the Detroit People's Food Co-op, and we're building a brand new building that will be called the Detroit Food Commons that will house the Detroit People's Food Co-op. The building will be on the southeast corner of Woodward and Euclid, right next door to where the hmm. Value World, I think it was Value World. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Value World used to be. The mm-hmm. North End, they call it. North End, that's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so we're building oh, about, yeah. um, so one of the reasons that this cooperative style of development is so important is because what we see in Detroit, the dominant thing that is being called development and is being touted throughout the world as Detroit's comeback is filthy rich white men who have the capacity to buy land or sometimes they're given it uh, for pittance because the mentality of the elected and appointed officials 
is that if rich white dudes build these edifices, that somehow this wealth trickles down to the rest of us, which is insane. But so in the face of that style of development, we think that co-ops are really the only chance that we have within the context of a capitalist society to build collective wealth and collective power. And it also builds democracy because it, uh, co-op is a democratic institution. In fact, in some ways, the difference in a corporation, a co-op is in a corporation, if you got a lot of money, you can buy, let's say Sister Brittany can buy 500 shares if she got a lot of money. Maybe I only have enough money to buy 10. So you have 50 votes, more, 50 times the votes that I have because you have more money. Gotcha. But in a co-op, it's one member, one vote. So you can only buy one share. You can only get one vote. And so it flattens it out. Mm. And so it causes us to have to exercise democracy. And part of what happens in a system of oppression is it takes our agency away and it has us in a situation where we're being decided for instead of learning how to make decisions for ourselves. So we think that in the face of this development that's happening in Detroit, so-called development, that the co-op model is an important alternative. We want to really lift that up. Powerful. I love the fact that you um, talked about this alternative economic model of the cooperative um, over the last, well, well, I grew up uh, having a co-op. It was in what uh, I guess is called now the Cass Corridor, or used to be called the Cass Corridor. They now call it Midtown, um, where Avalon Bakery used to be on uh, Willis off of... Um, They're still there, right? The co-op? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. The, the Avalon Bakery. Oh, yeah. Cass Corridor Co-op. Yeah, yeah, on Cass and Willis. Yes. used to be on Cass and Willis. And, um, and before that, just a little history, it was called Cobb's Corner. It was, ah. a, it was a jazz bar, Griot Galaxy, Farouk Z Bay and Sadiq Bay and the really? to play there. Yeah, just to give that a little history. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but when I was growing up going with my Baba, um, shouts out to my Baba Ibn. If y'all know Ibn Pori Pitts. Uh whoop, whoop, whoop. yeah, shouts <laughs> out to him. So growing up, um, that's where we went to the co op. Um and for me, going to the co op uh was our was so I knew if my Baba picked me up, we 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 got to make certain stops. We gonna go see Del Pryor. Shouts out to Del Pryor, first African American woman owned um, art gallery in Detroit. Currently, you know, uh, let me just say like the matriarch of the art world. You know, mm. um, who else would we go see? We would we would go see all these different people, all these different folks. You know what I mean? Uh, different artists, different, you know, people that were contributing to this black liberation community. And I want to say that that's what's different about growing up in a co-op or a cooperative community. That's this community economic model, right? Because it's one thing when people talk about black business and black owned business, uh, going back to the upwardly mobile conversation, is a conversation around individual wealth. So not to pick on people, but we can look at an Oprah who's a billionaire and be proud and find some solace in her having wealth. But where is that wealth being redistributed back into the community? And how many billions do you need to be sitting on um, in order for you to really feel successful, right? Um, The cooperative model allows for the community to define success as reliance on one another and not in a way 
that takes away from, right? But it, not, in, not in an extractive, it's not an extractive model of economy. It's an additive model of economy. So like with your co-op, I heard. With our co-op. With our co-op, yes, because I'm part owner. Woo woo. With our co-op, I heard some different things. There are some opportunities for independent businesses and entrepreneurs to develop products because there's a kitchen, right? And so that means that, okay, and for those that don't understand the value of having a community kitchen that is licensed. I do. <laughs> t- tell us, Brittany. Well, I want to open up a pizzeria. I've been working on my business plan for a while. I thought I was gonna, just going to be the visionary until I realized that I actually needed to probably be the chef too so I started working at uh, Sergeant Pepperoni's shout out to them because they gave me I mean I've always been in the in the food industry but they really let me get in the kitchen and do my thing um but long story short is to to work on my product I believe product is king in anything in any situation I make pizza every Sunday in my house and part of the stage that I'm in going into is testing my product which I've tested it but you know I want to uh, sell pizza slices and in order for me to do that legally I can't be inside of my home kitchen anymore so yeah because they can't accept the product from you well actually so there's something called a cottage food law I don't know if you know about that I don't so you can do it I think as long as you don't make more than I think it's $15,000 okay I didn't know about that so you might want to check into that okay I will because I was thinking you know and I was looking at all the things that I would require to do it legally. I was like out of the out of the picture as far as like getting that permit and them coming and checking out my workspace and so things of yeah. That so the cottage food law can allow you to sell enough to start to build it up so you have some kind of cash flow to okay. take it to the next level. All right. Well, thank you for that. And knowledge. I'd be glad to if I you know I I do lots of things food related. If Man, I can help, help you, I'd be glad to. Yes. So please. the same cooperative community she's talking about, we still building that. Understood. So okay, let's I'm make it happen. It. I'm okay. with it. But I'm, I said all that to say that I. Without that knowledge, I can only imagine someone who's on a different, on a on a higher higher scale than me that's doing all types of sort of things that needs that space. Yeah, you know that needs I mean? a, a yeah. commercial kitchen yes. to be able to uh, do expanded business and be able to be available in Whole Foods or or whatever right establishment. So check this out on the side of the building on the Euclid side, we're going to have. Um, like an overhang where we'll have booths, vendor booths on the whole side of the building during the warmer parts of the year. So, you know, it's going to stimulate uh, lots of business within our community and become a hub, an economic hub and a social hub. Gotcha. But again, that we control and we define. We define what it looks like. We define how, how, we define how the money flows. We define the aesthetic, all of that, you know. Mm. So that's that. Yeah, I just thank you for that, Baba. Um, yes. And then once it's once it's um, it's launching and and all that, I want to bring you back, and then we have a whole podcast just on the mm. co-op because because I'm sure we're gonna need that. Let's do it. Corey, okay, we should try to go there and do it if you're down for it. Oh, I like that idea. Uh, most on, on the scene, on the <laughs> do most a live. definitely. Yeah. Anything, uh, anything, well, as long like as I you said. would be okay with that too, us but, entering that space. You know, I'm sorry, I got hung up looking at the young Nas up there, yeah. so I, I spaced oh out for a minute. I'm sorry. <laughs> say what you said. Say what you said again. I, I was missed saying it. we. Uh, I was asking Piper and Kari, would they be down for us coming to your space if you would allow us into it to do the po- do a podcast there once? 
Like on the in, launch. In the world, in the words of a great hip hop artist, yes, yes, y'all. Hey. <laughs> so speaking of hip hop, I want to get into Molly Wop. Let's do that. Yeah. Um. And and thank you, Baba, for um, you know, just letting us know about the expansive ways in which you've contributed to um, supporting Detroiters, Detroit community, entrepreneurship, our health, our well-being, our education, our safety. Um, acknowledge yourself, like, you know, uh, thank you for, you know, just uh, all of the institutions that you have laid the foundation for, that you've built, that you've supported, that you contributed to. Um, this is all, this is not lightweight. It actually is the 180 degree opposite of lightweight. Um, there's a lot of stress that comes with that. There's a lot of burden that comes with that. There's a lot of criticism that comes with that, you know, and I just wanted to to honor, Thank you. you know, all of the work, and you know. And shout out to your process because people need to know that you have one too, you know, so your process must look mean. Mental process, spiritual process, uh, accepting help process, all those different things, so. Give thanks, I'm learning. Yeah, and so that makes sense that with all this work and effort and energy that you put into uh, our beloved community that you got to have some way that you rejuvenate yourself. Mm. And I would imagine that that's through Molly Wop. That's definitely one of the ways. Uh, but for me, it's all intertwined. So Molly Wop is a way to rejuvenate, but it's also part of the same struggle, you know, because the music we play is conscious music and we are kind of framing it differently maybe than what I've done in the past. Mm -hmm. I, had, I had a revelation a few years ago, and this might sound strange to y'all, but I, it, it dawned on me that when people come to a club, they're not coming to a political rally. <laughs> they're, they're coming to a party, right? Mm. And so, I mean, it was like a revelation. Like, I feel oh, it. man. You know, so, I mean, all the songs don't have to be like, <laughs> you know, yeah. beating people over the head. Kill the white people. Yeah, you know, trying to <laughs> shove ideology down their throat and trying to help yeah. people develop a great analysis of whatever. That is so you know. So, so I mean, all that's in our music, but it's much more subtle, and the way we frame it is more. It's it's a party. We're having a good time. The band is having a good time. The people listening to it are having a good time. But in the midst of that, we woke like a mug. You are too. And let me tell you something. Oh my God, the music is so good. Um, so in Detroit, it is so segregated. Mm. Even like within so-called marginalized or ethnic communities the 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 richness of the uh i'll say the african-american experience the tip the so-called typical african-american experience um you know is is very prevalent here what is very difficult to come by is the other um diasporic musical and cultural expressions and so I appreciate your contribution to the music sphere in digging into the wealth of the diaspora and, and bringing that all together. And you do it through bringing these various people together because it's, it's, it's the makeup of Mollywop that makes the richness of the diaspora. So can you speak to the members of Mollywop and what they bring? Yeah, Mollywop is an interesting configuration of personalities, and we're not all on the same page. And so in some senses, it's like a microcosm of the black community, mm. right? So we got 
Uh, one brother, Brother Salim Solar Liquid, oh, who I says, love his voice. who says that he's indigenous, right? And mm-hmm. he's not African. And I'm not, you know, I'm not arguing with him. That's where he's at. Yeah. And then we got another brother, Ayo Dele, that says he's all, he's just, just he's only African. Can African, you tell black, us who Ayo Dele is? Ayo used to be a singer with the dr- Dramatics. And so he's the leader of our vocal section. And then you got uh, Isis DeMille, who's primarily a jazz singer. And you got her father, Zion Israel. You know who's a, a keyboardist, the primarily jazz keyboardist. Um, then you got uh, Simone Winter, who is is the youngest member of the band, and she's you know she's who she is. Her I, voice I just is incredible. She's incredible, and you know, <laughs> I'm serious. She brings her person. So when you see happy. us on stage, and Aisha, and oh yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't go through everybody. So I we got Aisha on the drums. Oh. Nice. We got Ufuma on the bass. I've been knowing Ufuma since the 1970s. Wow. He used to play in a band when I was in high school called Energy MC Square that was the hottest band in the city. Then even before that, he played in a band called Mad Dog and the Pups. He he was the backup <laughs> band for them. This is way, way, way back in the late 1960s. They used to play a lot at a place on Grand River across from where the Olympia used to be, a place called the Soul Expression 2. And so... So I've been knowing him since way back. Who else do we have? So we got G Mac. G Mac, yeah, we got it. You gotta have an MC. So G Mac is a dope MC. He's so incredible. Cool. And we had G Mac on here a few weeks ago when we did the uh, the episode with XXX Extension, and we talked about um, healthy masculinity. Oh yeah, and we didn't yeah. Even touch on his layer of artistry. That's crazy. Oh, G Mac is so dope. So we mm-hmm. were in the studio with him last. He was in the studio with us the whole collective last okay. week. And so G Mac is from the old school of hip hop, gotcha. which is that you spit your verse, ain't no, I messed up, let's go back, punch <laughs> this word in. So the producer was trying to get him to punch a word that he mispronounced. He's like, nope, you know, the where I come from, either he, he, in fact, what he said is niggas get punched, not, you know, not, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. you know, so, uh, but G Mac is dope. And I've watched him like, like write verses, he's so quick. You know, I mean, quick and wordplay, witty, you know, it's just, so he just. It's his element. Yeah, he's a dope Was the universe that got all you guys to intertwine like that? Oh, and then don't forget Kadiri. Sorry. Yeah, so, and then we got Kadiri. So Kadiri hasn't been performing with as much in the last couple years. And also my son, Money Wells, he's an MC. So Mm. Shouts to Money Wells. Yeah, so they haven't been performing with us too much uh, in the last year. So uh, G-Mac has become like the main MC. But I think that's everybody. And then and we got Venus, Venus Sky. Yeah, mm. we, we got Venus Sky who performs with us sometimes. And Nico Red who performs with us Ooh-wee. sometimes. And Mellow Man who performs with us <laughs> sometimes. So I've known Mellow for a while. Mellow rocking with you guys? Oh, you mean Mellow, like yeah. Reggae Mellow? Yeah, Reggae Mellow. Yeah, periodically. This is uh, like the okay, super team. Say, I've, I've, uh, and I don't even know them. Yeah, I've I've known Mello uh, for a while. I haven't seen you guys with Mello. Mello. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mello's played with us many, many times. The concert mm-hmm. we did at the museum last year, the pipe was at Mello was on keyboards. Nice. Okay, okay. So, uh, so yeah, it's this conglomeration of all, all these dope people with different perspectives. And even on stage, when you look at us, you know, it, we don't all look the mm-hmm. same. And, you know, we don't all come out in uniforms and dress. <laughs> so everybody brings their own personality, which is what I really like. And so we don't all have to see eye to eye. But when we put it all together, yeah. musically, it's dope as fuck. It's hey. alchemy. Yes. That's why I was asking you. Did it? You know how things just come together, and you look up, and you're like, "How did this? How did this come?" Well, yeah, there was like some of that, but I mean, I kind of pick people too, Understood. right? So, Understood. you know, I, I found certain people who had elements. Because I had, in fact, to tell you the truth, 
the the impetus for putting Molly Wap together was listening to the album by Nas and Damian Marley. Oh mm. yes, distant relatives. Yes, and seeing how they had fused hip hop and reggae. Right. And because you know I played in reggae bands for many many years in the city of Detroit, and I love reggae, but not but I love reggae and there's other types of music I love as well. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know I don't want to deny those types of music because of my love for reggae. Right. And so, you know, I was trying to find a way to combine and fuse and, you know, make sure that we're always putting our unique voice nice. on this. And so, uh, so yeah, that was really the initial impetus for creating Molly Wap. See, and yeah. I, I would have been wrong as ever uh, speaking on my historian thing because even before, uh, when you played, uh, you played a bass line on my Preaching to the Choir album back in 2008. So I did. So you probably recorded that in 2007. Damn, did I get did, did you send my check for that, man? Uh, not at all, brother. I don't want not no Bitcoin either, man. Uh, hilarious. No I want, Bitcoin. I want white man's no money. No crypto. I want I want money with white dead, with dead presidents white on the front. On it. <laughs> but but then Bob Malik was like Bob Malik was like, Yeah, we're working on something. Um I'm gonna do more with my son, Dwayne. And my other son. So yeah. this is years ago. Yeah. And then he was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna mesh this together. It's going to be a little bit of reggae, a little bit of hip-hop. We're going to get Don Dexter on the keys. And it was like, your son, you, Don right, Dexter, right. and Dwayne. And this was back when Dwayne, Power Movement was, uh, right. shout out Power Movement, was like, they were, they, they, they had something going. <laughs> they, they had something going. And it was a little bit different from that field. But I remember a couple of those inceptions of shows. And speaking of shows and everything. So, so yeah, so we had a band prior to that, what you're talking about was called Insurrection. Mm-hmm. And you might have, I think, you, when I had the Black Star Bookstore, I think you might have performed at the festival we mm-hmm. had there. Oh, so Insurrection, really I put Insurrection together because I wanted my youngest son, Ajimu, who's by the way a dope. Shouts out to Ajimu. Yeah, I mean, he he's like a dope beat maker. Um, yeah, you know he's one of my babies, right? From uh, 5e. When he was a, when he was a youngin, he yeah, used to I be over you, there yeah, making beats. Yeah, I do beats. know that. I do know that. Yeah. He used to hang around us. <laughs> okay. So really, I, I initially put the band together so he would have a venue to play drums. He's a hell of a drummer. Yep. And then, you know, as time went on, he didn't really want to play drums, so we ended up, anyway, it just evolved into something else. And I, I remember when, yeah, so when you were doing that, you were like, I'm going to do a little of this, a little of that. And then that's what I was always thinking was like the, the start of like, okay, let's mesh this together. Yeah, it's all of that. Yeah. But the Nas album and Damian was, Marley, that okay. had a huge influence. All right. Okay, yeah. okay. See? So yeah. where we at? What we doing? Well, I wanted to understand a little bit more about the makeup of your band. Okay. Because what I think is, okay, so living in New York City. Can I say this, though, about yeah. the makeup? Yeah. So one of the things, like in most of the reggae bands I played in, is like men, 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 masculine, masculine, masculine. That's what I noticed. And mm-hmm. so we want to make sure in this band that we lifted up the sisters. Wonderful. And that, you know, there was at least an equal balance. I was really trying to have majority women, to mm. tell you the truth. You, but so, a, you have a woman as a drummer, you said? Yeah, we have a woman and as a drummer. And we have three women vocalists. That mm-hmm. is, that's yeah. awesome. But originally, I was trying to have a woman keyboardist too. But the sister who I was trying to bring in decided she didn't want to do it. But honey, yeah. a band is a lady, so yeah. I love so, it. but you know, but just you know, affirming the value that Understood. the sisters are bringing yeah. instead of this like hyper masculine mm-hmm. thing that often happens in the music world. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, and I wanted to you know, uh, you know, dig into that because, like I said, when I was in New York City, you know, uh, and and let me just say this: New York City is very segregated too. Mm. You know, it's made up of uh, communities of ethnicities. 
So the different neighborhoods are reflective of the different, you know, cultures. But um, one difference is in New York City, you're able to access these various mm. cultures more easily than you are here in Detroit. So in Detroit, let's say, you know, because of the way the landscape is set up and everything, basically you, you, you get in a vehicle, whether it's the bus or your car, and you head to destinations. So you really don't have any accidental meetings unless you walk, possibly if you ride your bicycle or if you ride one of these bicycles that you can, you know, ride share bikes. Maybe if you jump in nowadays, if you jump in a ride share, like a, you know, ride share company uh, and, you know, but for the most part, people live in one place and then they get in this car and then they go to wherever they're going. And then they get back in that car and they go back to wherever they're going. So the communities, the way communities develop are, 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 are different. I'm not saying that, that no one ever interacts, but the ways in which you interact here are going to be through your job um, or through, you know, being a part of an existing community, like a religious community, people you knew from college. They're, they're these like pockets of communities that are, I want to say man-made. Well, all communities are man-made, but I'd say a little bit more, you know, uh, you know, regimentedly <laughs> like man-made. Whereas in New York City, you can become a part of these different communities by just hopping on the train. Agreed. You know, and especially because in New York City, everybody takes the train, right? It's 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 a it's a democratic you know transportation uh, mechanism. So you can see bajillionaires <laughs> on the train just trying to get somewhere because they don't want to deal with traffic, um, or you know, all the way to right like like you know, visitors and, you know, tourists all the way to, you know, the hustlers and blah, blah, blah. So everybody is on, is in the train at, and, and, and it's just a way for, for folks to do this sort of, I'm going to call it like social learning, right? Or uh, where you see what people are wearing. Uh, you have these performers that happen in the train. So you're, hit, you're, you're, you're yeah. getting these different parts of culture. Um, you, you know, you have, like I said, you have access to these different communities. So you have lots of different pockets of West Indian communities. So when you hop off the train, you you will hear some reggae music if you come up on Utica Avenue in Brooklyn. And you'll smell some beans and rice being cooked. Mm. You know what I'm saying? If you hop up off the D train in the Bronx or you, you know what I'm saying? You yes. go into the projects and you can just hear these different sounds and smells from all these different countries just everywhere you go. Whereas in Detroit, for the most part, it's a, it's a kind of homogenous uh, uh, culturally. And so when you, when you do go to um, different communities, they're sort of segregated, right? So you go to Southwest, and it's like that's where most of the Latino community lives. In Detroit, we don't even have a place where so-called West Indian community is. We've got like a couple of, regu- we got a couple of um, West Indian restaurants, you know? And so it's interesting that you have this whole reggae band and you bring you 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 bring West Indian culture to Detroit. You know what I'm saying? So, so I want to push back a little. Okay. I appreciate and first that. Of all, when Molly- I did my first Detroit is different interview, I think he's about to go down that dive. Okay. It's deep. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll just say that Molly Wap is not a reggae band. Okay. And many people think that because we play some reggae and because I played in so many reggae bands over the year, I, I've been typecast. So people assume it's a reggae band. Then also, because our logo is like red, gold, and green with a black fist. So, right. so people assume it's reggae. 
But mostly what we play is not reggae. Okay. Most of what we play is funk, rock, soul. Some I don't even know what to call it because it's a combination that, yeah. of these things. I agree. Some songs have some reggae elements in it and some funk elements. So it's really a fusion of different styles of, of black music. So okay. we're not a reggae band. The other thing I want to push back on slightly is the use of the term West Indian. Got it. Um, because that term is definitely rooted in colonialism. Um, and I know lots of people use it. Um, but uh, for me, you know, it's rooted in Columbus being lost, number one, and, you know, calling the people he encountered here in the so-called Western Hemisphere Indians, uh, which, you know, they were called what they would call Arawak or, or Carib or whatever their ethnic group was. Um, and then also the whole use of, like, Western Hemisphere or terms like Mideast or Far East, these are all Eurocentric terms because they place Europe at the center of our consciousness and measure the rest of the world in, re- in relationship to Europe. So I just want to lovingly push back against that term and say uh, I think a better term would be Caribbean to describe the, the region, and it, that region is named after the Carib people who lived on many of the islands and what we now, now call the Caribbean. So, yes, we are bringing elements of Caribbean music, but we're also bringing, you know, the funk that was created at, uh, at the studio over on at United Sound, right? We're bringing the, the funk that George Clinton brought, and we're bringing, you know, the vocal harmonies that, uh, that um, the dramatics and the temptations and all, you know, that whole tradition. We're bringing the jazz tradition that has evolved in Detroit to a higher level. So it's, you know, it's all of that. So it's not just, I just want to make sure that people know Molly Wap is not a reggae band. We do play some reggae, but that's not predominantly what we're doing. Thank you for that, Baba. And thank you for reminding us to use our, our language. Yeah. yeah, because language is important. We always talk about that. So thank you for that, Baba. We thank appreciate you. that. Um, I, so with that. Is that um, what you thought I was going to say? No, nah, I thought you were going to go deep into like, Baba Malik gave almost like the the twenty year history of Detroit's relationship with the reggae culture. Oh, that's a whole. Nother and I thing. had no idea it went that deep. But is that on the Detroit is different podcast? Yes. So people, I, wait, wait, what's the name of it? It's just the first. If you look up the Detroit is different podcast, the very first one, and actually of all the ones that go back and get listens, it's it's Malik Yakini's, Thornetta Davis's. Uh, and uh, who else? I don't know. Those are like two that it's this goddess that I interviewed at, uh, that's running for president now, Andrew Yang. And people listen back to that one a lot. Those are like my people go back and listen to from years ago podcast. Okay. So you know what? Maybe if I can take two minutes, I want to maybe since you're raising this, run some of that history about reggae in Detroit. So the first reggae band in Detroit was run by this brother named Horatio Bennett from Jamaica. It was called the Herbal Experience. And Horatio had a little spot on Wyoming near Curtis. It was a little club. He would spin records in there. And so that was the earliest reggae band that I know about in the city of Detroit. What year around that? Uh, This was probably about 77, 78, something like that. Uh, But by 78, 79, I had joined a band called Onyx, O-N-X-Y-Z, led by a brother named Khalid Abdul Mutakabir Allah Shakur. He used to be married to Satori Shakur, who does the uh, Twisted Twisted Storytellers. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, she used to sing with P-Funk. With I think she was part yeah. of the she Brides. Brides of Funkenstein. Yeah. Oh, she and the Brides of Parlet. I can't remember which one. Mm-hmm. But she, and she did some things with Onyx, right, when I was with Onyx. But Onyx was a combination kind of funk band, reggae band. And uh, we were one of the bands that helped to really popularize reggae in Detroit. 
we played at Alvin's every Thursday for about three or four years, and you know we'd have a packed house every every Thursday night there. But then Onyx kind of split, and so myself, Kamal Amira, and Prana Ananda, who's Ayende Ananda's father, uh, formed Ako Ben because we were more on the like the Pan Africanist revolutionary tip. We wanted more music that was doing that. So. Uh, Ako Ben became like the kind of cultural conscious voice of reggae in Detroit. Then you had some other bands that split off. Uh, Brother Nuruddin, Don Dexter, uh, he and some other folks created the Maka Rhythm Triad that kind of grew out of that. Um, Brother Kareem Baki, who was one of the vocalists in Onyx, created a band called Nomads, which we ended up uh, going to Africa, going to uh, Cote d'Ivoire in, I think, 1998 and playing in a big reggae festival um, you know, in, in Cote d'Ivoire. So you had all of these kind of branches that came off of this central tree, which was onyx. So I just want to lift that up. Thank you for that. Yeah, let, me, let me say this, just in fanning out. The best thing about, <laughs> about Molly Wap, just from a music perspective to me, um, and also in fanning out on Piper. Love Piper. Me and I'm so team Piper. I love you Piper gave, too. You said you gave the me most too. eloquent way of calling Detroit a clickish city I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> you just talked about the way the hemisphere and it's divided. But it's experiential. The Molly Watt show is experiential. Uh one of the last shows I remember I went to every time I've seen Molly Wap is most days I'm I'm running from like five different events and I think to myself, eh, I'll go in here and just show some love. I got mad love for G Mac alone on the entrepreneurship tip. And I, in my mind, I say to myself, you know, I have a strong 45, 90 minute rule. I've never stayed, I've always stayed longer than I plan to stay because the experience of a Molly Wap show of just seeing the way the crowd interacts, the people dance, it's, it's experiential. And I've seen a lot of spectacle based shows, but it just doesn't feel like an experience. It feels like every time I've seen George Clinton, I assume the white people that like Jimmy Buffett, how those shows are or something. Like, it, it's not as much of a, like, I'm going to watch a show, which sometimes that's cool, but you're walking into something. And that's whether I've walked into the Marble Bar, whether I've stood outside of Dobble's Bees Museum, whether I've seen them at Northern Lights, whether I've seen them at the Charles Wright. It becomes an experience that Molly Wap as an entity travels with this own feel that supersedes the venue. And I that I can't think of any other performer, and I know a lot of great performers that capture that in Detroit. The only other performer that does that is Thornetta Davis. It's you, it's Molly Watt and Thornetta Davis, where it's like, I've seen them in so many different variations of venues and everything where I think to myself like, the sound could be better, or this could change, or that could change, or that could change. But it's almost like a feel People start dancing. The people catch the grooves. The the back and forth with the audience. It it doesn't even feel as much like a performance as much as it feels like a. I don't even an know. experience. So yeah. so we're bringing the um, spontaneity and the improvisation as part of jazz, uh, but also bringing the the soul, you know, of the church and and the hardcore, you know, funk rhythms of P-Funk, all of that, all of those elements are combined. And it is an experience. And, you know, like you go to a Sun Ra performance or something like that, you know, it's a, it's so part of, part shout of what, shout out to Sun Ra. Shout out, Ashe. So, oh my God. 
so you know, and I'm not comparing us to Sun Ra, but I mean, all these are influences. You gave me the imagery, though. Yeah, the yeah. spontaneity and the stage presentation, and all that, of that. That too, that too. You know, because it's 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 like some sometimes what I like doing. Drama, I, I like I like bringing some things to the stage that the performers don't even know is getting ready to happen. So it just happens in the moment, right? <laughs> yeah. And I might put somebody on the spot. We might just start playing a, a jam so, in E. And I'd be like, Al Daly, you know, put something to that on the mic. This is on stage in front of the audience, right? That's the best, though. And so so we're creating, you know, even though we have a structure we're creating within, we're creating on the spot. And so yeah. that kind of spontaneity, it keeps the band happy. Yeah. And if the band is having fun, the audience can't help but have fun. Yeah, and it also, I mean, that's something I really love um, about, you know, uh, just hip-hop and jazz and in the black music experience is improvisation. To me, hip hop uh, has to have improvisation in it. For me, the, the, the what I love about hip hop is the uh, hip hop performance or the freestyle or the cipher is the genius that comes out of that spontaneity. Like this man here, I've seen him freestyle. I mean, it bl- people who freestyle, it just blows my mind. Blows my mind. It's incredible. I mean, it's a level of genius I can't yeah. even begin to express yeah. to just like off the top. you looking around you. you just responding to your environment and yeah. creating words and it makes sense. to reflect it. And it makes sense. And it rhymes. And it's, and it's rhythmic. Yeah. You know, it's like that's that's a whole nother level whole beyond nother. the left brain, right brain thing. That's some... Shout out to Kari over there blushing a little bit. But oh. seeing it in the performance is, uh, is magical, right? Yeah. There's nothing more magical than having a band respond to that spontaneity. Mm-hmm. There, it's such a magic. Like that was the reason that we used to go to Burt's every Thursday, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they used to have where all the musicians when they would go on tour, they would um, go to Burt's every Thursday and they'd be there until Burt's closed, and they would just play and play and play and play. And you would see anybody in Burt's. You might turn around and. Um, They'll hand somebody a microphone and he'll go off and you'll be like, that guy sounds just like Stevie Wonder. And then you turn around and it's like, oh, Stevie. <laughs> and and and, and, the, and the musicians that would be there, they maybe they were on tour with Stevie mm. or something. And so that was the reason Stevie was there because such and such was playing with him because you know everybody in Detroit plays with everybody. Mm-hmm. And then they would be like, well, let's go to Burt's. Let's hit, you know, that's music. We got to hit at Burt's tonight. And so everybody would go <laughs> down there and, 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 and watch this thing. And so you, for you to bring that level of magic onto the stage, like that's a gift because, um, and no disrespect to preparation because that's important to practice preparation. Yeah, yeah. And, we, do, and, we do that. Yeah, and, and, and no disrespect to that um, structure because that's right. very important. Right. But there's just something about being an audience or a receiver of this energy of just seeing like this genius that just happens. Mm. And you can feel the difference between someone that has this show that they've practiced and it's just like a really good, strong, tight performance. And then someone, you can tell when someone says, okay, okay, hit it, James. And it's like, oh, snap. You can feel, and there's an inner, you can feel it. You, I can't really describe it, but it's almost like catching the Holy Ghost. Mm. And the whole room catch the Holy which is the magic of music, which is why, a lot of cultures don't allow. <laughs> so since you're talking about the magic, I'm going to reveal something here that I haven't really revealed before. And that is that each Maliwap show is really a ritual. Mm. And so if you if you notice carefully, what we do is we begin the show by, uh, we play a song called We Enter. And so the band is playing just some kind of etheric music. 
uh, Simone Winter comes out with some sage and sages the room. Okay. And she's dancing. And then G-Mac comes with these uh, lyrics. Uh, he says, you know, they emerge from triple darkness um, and so on and so forth. But anyway, what it is, it's a, a ritual really bringing the entire audience into into this collective space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once we kind of have brought them in, then we, we come with the music. So, you know, I've been experimenting with that concept of music as ritual. And so it's not just a performance, but it's consciously and, and we I'm, don't say that, but I'm saying it now for the first time. And I'm sure that's for you and that's for the audience, too. So. Yeah, yeah, for mm. sure, for sure. It's, it's, and then that other element of a Molly, Molly Wap show, and the only time I really remember this, because Thornetta does it, too, and that's why I guess it's so much like it, too. You all are, it's dramatic, too, because it's like some comedic timing, generally, between the vocalists and the performers and, like, everything going on where it goes. Like, so it's not just like a, you know, it's, you know, you've heard like the skits where like it'll be like, you know, I'm going through something today and I lost my job. And then like the music. Boom, 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 boom. And it's like, OK, was that uh, was that the drum play for the song for the for the joke? Or was that like you're almost drawn away from this culture of like where you're in your cell phone? Where you just got to look up and say, OK, is this a part of the show or is this not a part of the show? For the like, little bit it of sunrise, feels yeah. l- so much like it's it, it like you're. I'm almost like watching mm. an act come to life where I'm a part of it. So can I say one wow. more one more another thing? I want to give a shout out to um, some elders who created the template that's also mm. influencing what we do. So in the 1970s in Detroit, you had a group of musicians called the Tribe, and it was Harold McKinney. Oh. It was Marcus Belgrave, wow. Wendell Harrison, what? Phil Ranelin, and this some is... others. And so they had a collective. And what they were doing is they were putting out their own records. They were producing their own shows. And so that example of not just the creativity, but the independent music production right. influenced me deeply. And I continue to carry forward that tradition that rests squarely on the shoulders of these jazz masters who created this example for us in the 70s. Oh, thank you for that. That's powerful. I mean, it's powerful because when you think about uh, the, the the quote-unquote success or the actual success of all of those musicians, right? All those musicians are world-renowned, uh, universal, right? Like, uh, you know, they've had a, a phenomenal amount of success. And they're currently successful, and they've left this, this legacy. And you think about... Um, when you think about the music industry as an industry, as a, as a, as a, as a, as an industry, I think, um, about people being afraid to do their own thing, to, to step out there, to produce their own stuff because they don't, they don't want to not be in, in the matrix per se, but you know, this is something that you're doing, but, but like you said, you're in the tradition of, and you just think about those people being independent and doing it on their own, and then the trajectory of where they are now. You I, I know wanna, what I'm saying? I want to invoke one more person that you can talk on, and I still, and I called him when I found out about him, and it was actually through Jallo. <laughs> in that same... Shouts out to Jallo. I, oh, yeah, love Jallo. Ray Brooks. Jallo played on that show with us in Africa, by the way. Oh, okay. I got some videotape. I, I got some videotape of Jallo in, in Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, but that's a whole nother thing. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, Jalo used Roy to do Brooks. our parties at uh, he used to do our reggae parties. Oh, okay, at the gallery. Yeah, in June Bay, Roy Brooks uh, also is a, a huge influence 
and uh, he had a group called the Aboriginal Percussion Choir. Wow. And uh, Roy would do that, all kind of things. Right? He'd bring little toy toy animals and twist them up, turn them, and have them like marching on the stage making noise. And he'd be <laughs> bouncing a basketball, playing a saw. And so, I mean, all that, you know, all that creativity, that's part of what. So, look, back to I said, we're not a reggae band. Mm-hmm. So, again, I love reggae. I love the music that came out of the Caribbean. But I'm not going to deny this great tradition that came out of right here in Detroit, where yeah, I'm from. of course. And so we want to uplift that, affirm it, and extend it. There we go. As well as appreciate the music from the other parts of the African diaspora. Mm-hmm. And so all of that that you name it, Roy Brooks, Farouk Zibay, right? The great Farouk Zibay saxophonist. Oh, he played with us in Onyx for many years. Mm. Like those Thursday nights, I was saying it. At Alvin's, um, Farouk Zibay was on sax. So, you know, all these elements, Farouk kind of represented, Farouk and Griot Galaxy represented what we call the out tradition in jazz. You know, that was gone, that went beyond the harmonic sensibilities of so-called Western music and rhythmically was taking stuff to another place and people playing two notes on the saxophone simultaneously, all kind of stuff, you know. In fact, one more thing, I'm going to just say this little bit of history. So uh, the great bass player, Jeribu Shahid, who was a jazz oh, bassist in the city. Shout out Jeribu. So Jeribu was my close, close partner during high school. And, you know, we kind of started playing music together. And um, uh, when we were in high school, our last year in high school, which was actually 1973, there was a place on Puritan, I'm sorry, on Finkel, uh, near Myers, and it was called Train's House. And it was a tea room, and Farouk Zibay and uh, the first primal African uh, rhythm orchestra or something, that was their name, they played there every Friday night. Hmm. They didn't serve any alcohol, and it was a brother playing the sitar, some brothers playing uh, uh, tablas, brothers playing uh, trap drums, upright bass. And so just all of that, I just want to shout out all of that because all of that is in my consciousness and it's helping to inform the the yeah. music that we're doing and I, now. Would, I And I hear some of these stories and then like you call, I call up people like Malik Yakini or, uh, you know, Butch Small or something. Because like I hear some of these stories, especially like, like what he said with the basketball on stage with Ray Brooks and like at one point in time, like Jalo, and then I had to call, I was like, is this serious? I was like, who else would go? And then Jalo was like, Malik was there, and then you know Jalo, and I'm like, so he was doing a show, and he had like this planet and stars playing behind him, <laughs> and it's like for real. And you know what's interesting? Pre projector world. When I was a child, my 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 uncle Baba Ibn used to take me to some of these these uh, events. I'm going to call them that were at galleries, mm-hmm. and I'll be a little girl, and I would be standing there watching it, and I would see people painting. Right. On one side. And because my uncle was would would uh, he wrote poetry and he's a painter, but he also wrote poetry and um, was very uh, embedded in um, this jazz and uh, improvisational Mm. art culture that Detroit is a very uh, improvisational. uh, You know, historically, our, our tradition is improvisational art. And, you know, when you were just talking, it took me back. Cause I remember being a, a, a little girl and going to these places with him and he would take, he would take me around and I just remember looking around like, this is weird, but I like it. <laughs> I, I met you. I met your uncle Ibn in 1978 at WDET. I used to work with project bait and we had a show on WDET on Friday nights called for my people. 
and I met Ibn in the studio there. We l went on to play music together. In fact, um, one of the bands I played in called the Nomads, I mentioned Kareem Baki, who, you know, when we broke off from Onyx, he created this band called Nomads. And we did the first and probably the only reggae show to date at the DIA. Mm. And it was recorded. Uh, there's an there's a, a album that's been produced, and it's available somewhere. I'm not sure where you can get it. But uh, Ibn performed with Nomads on that show at the, uh, at the DIA. And I wonder if I was there. I'm going to have to go back. You know, he has recordings. He used to do video. Yeah, he videotaped my father's everything. funeral. Wow. Ibn had, had everything on video. He has everything yeah. video. Um, I got to try to go through his archives. Um, he has all of this culture on video. And it's interesting because what you're describing is the Detroit that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. My world was this black liberation world mm -hmm. where there's, there was all these, you know, revolutionary black artists that were creating their own spaces mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, making their own CDs and their own books. And this is not the Internet. There is no Internet at this point. Or we don't know about it. You know what I'm saying? So I just want to thank you for, uh, you know, just uplifting this culture of uh, black liberation, self-determination on all levels, right? Thank you. And bringing us this music and, uh, you know, just bringing us something that that we can enjoy and have fun with. And it's our culture. Mm -hmm. Can I give a shameless plug for Let's Molly Wop? Let's do it. So we want people to like us on Facebook, Molly Wop, M-O-L-L-Y-W-O-P. And we list all of our upcoming shows on Facebook. We have several coming up, by the way. In the next uh, the next month, we got maybe five, six, seven shows in the next six weeks or so. Wow! Uh, so we want people to come out. Then we got a single coming out called "Shake," which will be out in the next couple of months, and we're working on a whole album called "Woke AF." Um, <laughs> and so we want people to kind of stay tuned for that. And it's dope, dope, dope. Piranha Head is the producer. Shouts and, out to Piranha Head. He's, he's taking the music to another level. So we just want people, you know, we need the support of our community for the music we're making. And, and Shake is the song you hear at the beginning of this podcast, and you'll hear it at the end of this podcast. So you know you want to get a taste of that. You you heard me hype up the experience. Check it out. Yeah, check it out. So uh, Piper Carter Podcast. Thank you, um, Baba Malik, for, Thank you, Piper. for coming through. We appreciate you. You guys got to um, check out Molly Wop, M-O-L-L-Y-W-O-P. Is how you spell it. They're a band. They're incredible. Um, check them out. They got shows on YouTube. They've got, like he said, you know, the different social media, Facebook. Um, and, you know, support them. And support the co-op. You definitely want to check yeah, out the yeah. co-op. Um, D-Town Farms. Yeah, yeah. Um, Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Um, all black everything. All black everything. Support I'm, support I'm these for, systems. I'm for all black people. I'm voting for all black people, too. I'm rooting for all the black people. So am I, Baba. And, yeah, Brittany, did you have any last words? What up, though, Brittany? So, I have a lot of last words this time. So, I want to talk about how um, we often, in the mainstream of Pan-Africans or just Africans, however you identify yourself, we talk about how we're missing leaders and we're, we talk about the issues and we talk about we don't have the solutions or we have the solutions but we're doing too many of the solutions. Thank you for giving us your process and thank you, Piper, for giving us insight on the things that he's doing because they're so intertwined and you are on the ground. Give so thanks. I want people to understand that you are where you are in your process and that you all have the opportunity, including myself, to be on the ground in any way possible. So thank you for being so humble so that we can see that. And a lot of thank times... You. Ego, even when it's unconscious ego, 
can be so detrimental because it keeps us from sharing our solutions that we give out to the universe every day and we don't even take credit for it because we're wrapped in that ego. So thank you for your humility. Thank you. Thank you for blessing me. And thank you, Piper, for bridging the gap for that. Kari, Detroit is different. You are different. I'm good. Yeah, so, you know, you guys need to, okay, listen, email us. Piper at Detroit is different. Brittany at Detroit is different. Yes. Uh, those are both dot com. And um, let us know, you know, are you getting married? Um, are you graduating? Are you uh, are you working in your community? Mm. You know, uh, are you sending your kids off to college? Like, tell us about your struggles, your triumphs, your dreams, your aspirations. And tell us what you think about the show. Um, we're only going to read your emails, though, if it's good. If you don't like the show, we don't Hilarious. care. <laughs> hilarious don't hilarious listen. no i'm serious though mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah we want to hear from you we no want you to shade. uh you, we, yeah no shade you know but we just want you to uh we want to know who's out there who's listening and um yeah the listenership is up we appreciate everyone that's listening everyone that's contributing get involved we bring the guests on here so that you guys can find out what's going on but now we need you to do that next step you need to get involved right get into it get involved James and so, um, like James Brown. James Brown. you know, you know, so yeah. So Piper Carter podcast on Detroit is different and everywhere on your social media. Check us out. Keep listening. Much love. Peace. Peace. This is the Peace. Detroit is different podcast network. The culture of an American classic city. You're listening to the Piper Carter podcast on the Detroit is Different podcast network.